Hi, and welcome to Harvest Bible Chapel, Kuala Lumpur Online. We hope that the following message will be a blessing to you as you seek to walk with the Lord in spirit and in truth. For more information about our church, please visit www.harvestkl.org or click the link in the description below. Good morning, church. My name is Michael. I serve as one of the elders here at Harvest. Uh, it's a delight to see you all this morning. Thank you for coming to, to Harvest this morning. This is a special Sunday. You may have smelled that fact on the way in with the various foods being accumulated outside there. Um, and so I'm glad you're here to celebrate with us today. Uh, the pandemic was a challenging time. You don't need me to tell you that. Uh, it was a challenging time across the globe. And it affected the international community in Malaysia uh, quite hard um, because there were harder restrictions on the international community uh, than in, in some cases, at least. Uh, international churches were restricted from meeting together even when local churches were permitted to meet um, all of this uh, accumulated to the point that Harvest KL did not meet in person for nearly two years. And that's hard for any church to go through. During that time, many, because this is a transient community, many people moved out of KL during that time, making it hard to say goodbye in a, in a, in a good way. And all the while, it was the ongoing prayer of the church to be able to gather together again. And so that's why today we are celebrating our first time back together as a church one year ago. So this Sunday marks one year since we started meeting back together in person. And that was an answer to prayer. That, that is evidence of God at work in our community. One of the beautiful things about... Um, about this whole thing is seeing how many harvest faithful jumped in, served in a variety of ways, served in ways that were outside of their comfort zone, but willing to serve in order for us to come back together. Our gathering was simple, but it was beautiful. And it was great to be together singing and praying and hearing from the word of God together. And I believe this is, the, this is God at work in preserving this church family, bringing us back together again. And so to celebrate, I want to teach you some Hebrew. It's a phrase that means God be praised. Here's how you say it. Hallelujah. Now say it with me. Hallelujah. Amen. Now you know some Hebrew. Actually, you already knew it in Hebrew. You just didn't know it. All right, let's shift gears. We are, as a church, going through uh, the Sermon on the Mount, which is found in the Gospel of Matthew, chapters 5 through 7. This morning, we will be in verses chapter 5, verses 13 to 20. This passage, the Sermon on the Mount, is Jesus... It's a sermon or a teaching from Jesus directed at 
those who have become his disciples, those who are his followers. Now, there are a, there's a big crowd listening in, but really the Sermon on the Mount is directed at those who are his followers. There is something unique about being human that is different from other creatures. And that is that we have this internal idea of being good or bad, doing right or wrong. How many of you want to be a good person? Just raise your hand. Okay. Surprisingly, there are some that do not, but... <laughs> but I had a feeling most at least would raise their hand because, you know, we have this internal sense that being good is right. It's, it's so obvious that it sounds dumb to even say it. Some might be hoping, uh, maybe for some kind of neutral option, however. When it comes to morality, however, neutral is not really an option. Think of it this way. If I'm riding on the, the LRT, and there's this man that starts harassing an elderly lady, and I just say, I'm neutral. Is that, is that okay? Can I just stand back and watch? You know, sometimes we say, oh, this is not my, this is not my fight. I have not, no part in this. No, right? That would be morally wrong to just stand by and watch. And the truth is the elderly lady is probably also thinking, I should have no part in this either, right? And so it is either good or bad how you respond to that. Now, of course, the, the situation can be a lot more complex than that, but I painted it in simple colors uh, for us to look at. There isn't a neutral option. Someone is either faithful to their spouse or they're not. Someone is either honest or they are dishonest. Neutrality is a myth. Nobody, nobody is amoral, meaning that they are without morals. In this passage, Jesus challenges his listeners to go beyond trying to be good, but to live outstanding lives. So let's read the passage together. Matthew 5. I'll start reading in verse 13, and I'll go all the way to verse 20. You are the salt of the earth, but if salt lose, has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others, so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. 
For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot, will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. This is the word of the Lord. This morning, we're going to walk through this passage in four parts. You are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. He is the fulfillment of the law. We are a people who enjoy righteousness. You are the salt of the earth. Again, I remind you that when Jesus is speaking here, he is directing this to his disciples. There are others listening in, but when he says you are the salt of the earth, he means that those who have become his disciples, who have submitted to his lordship, to his teaching. Salt around the world has become, has been a valuable commodity. Uh, Just recently, I was speaking with the director of our son's school, and he was, he's Persian, and so he was talking about a phrase, and I don't know what it is in Farsi, but that uh, to be with salt is a positive thing. Is that true? You don't know. Okay. Um, but it's, it's to speak well of someone's character. And I think that, that it's a, it points to the fact that salt is a valuable commodity. It has been in every civilization around the world. And salt has many different uses. Um, but in Jesus' day, it was not just a, like, a tabletop condiment to sprinkle on your food, but really had more use to preserve food, especially meat. Um, it was used to, it was also used as a form of fertilizer um, and some other things. Jesus doesn't explain how he uses the metaphor here, but it's clear that Jesus is indicating that his followers have the potential for great influence. Recently, I had the chance to visit ancient Corinth in Greece. And it was very interesting to visit the city where the Apostle Paul lived and where one of the earliest churches took root. But Corinth's history went far back before Paul ever arrived there. And so you see in this, this picture, fish skin that I saw in a museum there comes from 500 B.C. Fish that is 2,500 years old. That's amazing. And why? Because it was salted. Salt preserved that fish for 2,500 years old, for 2,500 years. I think my brain needs some salt. Salt is a stable compound, and so when it's used in its purest form, it has this kind of effect. 
The only salt that loses its taste, which is what Jesus is talking about, is defective salt. It is not truly salt. Its composition has been changed in some way. In other words, if you are truly a disciple of Jesus, you will have an impact on the world. If you are truly salt, then your saltiness should impact those with whom you have contact. How then do we become salty? We'll leave that question hanging. You are the light of the world. In ancient days, there were no lights on roads between cities. When people were traveling um, between cities, the way by which they would navigate was light coming from cities up on hills. The places far from cities were dark and unsafe, and the guiding light of the city showed the way to go. Jesus uses a similar illustration with a, a lamp, and with a lamp, you know, you don't want to put it under a basket or hide it in some way. His message was, was simple. Let your light shine before others. In other words, Christians, we are supposed to be actively doing good works. And based on what Jesus says next, these good works should be public, recognizable as good, meaning we should do good beyond the church community, but in our community and city. Recently, Karen and I met up with a couple from a small village in England. Um, the, the wife was a uni student and, and spent a year here in KL a few years back um, when she was studying. And so we met up with them and she was just lamenting the fact that in where they live in their town in England, that volunteers are dropping off. That some of those things that she grew up with were no longer available in the same way, like Girl Scouts and other youth activities, because they don't have volunteers. And, and she said, you know, there are the paid version of those things that people can pay for and go to, but that means that only those with, those with the means to do it can have access to those things. And then poorer families do not have access to those things. So lots of services are run by volunteers, Girl Scouts, Boy Scouts, soup kitchens, big brother, big sister organizations, community cleanups, youth sports, disaster relief, the list could go on and on. These services are struggling because volunteers are not volunteering. People, they lack people to help. And I, and I think part of the problem is we now have the capability to entertain ourselves endlessly. It is Netflix's biggest dream is for you to just continue on into the next thing and not volunteer ever. It's nice in some ways to be able to have entertainment at our fingertips, but what it is doing to us is it's making us more selfish with our time and our energy. And we justify it. 
ah, I've, I've worked hard today. It's been a hard day today. Or I did a nice thing last week. Or maybe it was last year. No matter the reasons we give, I think our friend from England was right. Volunteerism is dropping. And I think that's not just in England. I think that's in a lot of places. You and I, we, have been called to do good works. We are to let our light shine before others. Jesus is challenging those who claim to follow him to be the salt of the earth, to be the light of the world, to do good works. As people are blessed and served by the good we do, it's our prayer that they will see that it is actually God at work, that they might give him glory. So then, how then do we become light? How do we become salty? How do we become light? We're moving into it in the second half of this passage that we're looking at today. It might seem a little bit disjointed with that previous passage, but I think it all connects in terms of the significance for us this morning. He is the fulfillment of the law. And some background information may be helpful. When Jesus talks about the law and the prophets, he is referring to what we know as the Old Testament. This was the Bible they had, and it was the key instruction for how to live life. They had the law, and they were supposed to live by it. But their practice of obeying the law had become distorted. Last week here at Harvest, we heard Dr. Justin preaching from Mark chapters 2 and 3. And we saw Jesus tested by Pharisees for doing what they considered to be work on the Sabbath. Now, Jesus was not at all canceling the fourth commandment to keep the Sabbath day holy, but rather he was reframing the commandment that God had made the Sabbath for the sake of rest for people, not for the sake of just keeping rules. So Jesus was responding to people who were so obsessed with keeping rules that they had lost the point of the rules to begin with. There were others, the rebellious types, who were excited about what Jesus was doing, thinking that Jesus was doing away with all of the law, that they might be able to do whatever they want. Both of these, the law keepers and the law breakers, they're both operating out of self-interest. And strangely, both groups might think they have the moral high ground that they are better than the other group. It's a strange tendency we have as humans to try and elevate ourselves over others, to think that we might be better. But we are not better, really. I think most of you said you wanted to be good. 
What guide do you use for being good? Who tells you how to be good? For some of you, some of you, maybe you're using kind of a religious framework, maybe somewhat like the Pharisees. You have a checklist of things to do and not do, things to think and not think. And then you think or you hope that if you do all of the things, then God will have favor on you. Others might find their moral authority somewhere else. Maybe it's whatever feels right. I think that is more people than would admit to, that that is how they guide their moral framework. Maybe it is being guided by what everyone else says is good. What is your basis for moral authority? And is your source of moral authority reliable? Jesus brings some clarity to this situation, this tug of war between the, the law keepers and lawbreakers says that he didn't come to cancel the law. In fact, here it says that he came to fulfill the law. And what, but what does this mean? Uh, now stay with me on this. This is maybe the most complicated part of this. Um, and we get into, we could get into some really deep theological ground. We won't go there this morning, but, um, but this is an important passage to understand. The Bible tells us that the law and the prophets were pointing us to Jesus. The law gave a, gave a basic framework for how to live. And it was summed up by, by Jesus at another place in the Gospels as loving God fully and loving our neighbor as ourselves. There were lots of detailed laws that guided people uh, how to obey the law in that time. And then there were sacrifices, and those sacrifices were, were built into this law framework. Because there was ultimately a recognition that we still needed to rely on God as the God who saves. So when Jesus says that he is the fulfillment of the law, it means that all of all the, the places that, that all of the places that were pointing forward to the Messiah in the Old Testament, that he was the one, that Jesus was the one to rescue people from bondage. This came true in Jesus. All the places that were talking about a coming king who would rule in righteousness, these came true in Jesus. So for all of those of you who are trying to be good, which I would guess was 90%, this is not a scientific study. Um, based on whatever standard you're using, are you good yet? Have you done it? 
I imagine that if we were to sit down and talk it through, we would fairly quickly see that none of us is truly good. And that even the standards we try to keep are full of inconsistencies and contradictions. The law shows us that we fall short of the standard, that even our best is not good enough. So the law shows us that we need a savior, a Messiah, a king. Jesus has accomplished everything he needed to accomplish. Jesus is proof that God started, what God started in the Old Testament is brought to completion in Christ. But we're still left asking, how how do we live? Are we supposed to obey the whole law to the T, or have we failed in some way? This final verse of our passage really helps us make sense of it all, but maybe not quite in the way we think. We are a people who enjoy righteousness. I'm going to read the verse again, verse 20. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. That's a strong statement. Jesus does not say that we are free to live however we want. Some people think that this is what Jesus was trying to do, that he was, he was kind of blowing up conventional religion, a sort of the popular culture conception of Jesus. But Jesus actually says you need to actually be better than the Pharisees. That's pretty tough. The Pharisees, they were good at following the law. That's, that, was their, that was their strength. That was their, their, their superpower. So how do we obtain that kind of righteousness? How do we obtain the kind of righteousness that exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees? There's only one way. We need the righteousness of another. Jesus was the perfect fulfillment of the law, which means our only shot at being righteous is through him. Jesus lived a perfectly moral, morally good life. But then he died the death of a criminal in order to take our sin upon him. His death was the ultimate sacrifice. A sacrifice good for all time, for all history. When we give our lives to Jesus, it is as if we are giving our lives to die on the cross with Jesus. But Jesus does not let death have the final say. He overcame death, rising back to life on the third day. So if you choose Jesus, then you also have new life in Jesus. This new life means you have received forgiveness and walk in newness of life. There's a a classic book on discipleship called The Cost of Discipleship by Uh, German theologian Dietrich Bonhoeffer. And in this book, he really walks through the Sermon on the Mount. So he says this, it is Jesus himself who comes between the disciples and the law, and not the law which comes between Jesus and the disciples. 
How can our righteousness exceed that of the scribes and Pharisees? Only in Christ. It is he that brings renewal within us because that is the problem. The ultimate problem is not with the things we do and we don't do. The ultimate problem is with our heart. We do things that are not good because it's what we love. There's a weird kind of pleasure that can come from sharing gossip with others. We may not even be aware of it, but when we gossip, it makes us feel good in a twisted kind of way. We love the feeling that we get from it. Jesus' death and resurrection was not merely a do-over for us because we would surely just allow sin to rule over us all over again. Rather, when we join our life with Jesus, we are joining with the one who is God's righteousness manifested. Just briefly, I want to jump over to the book of Romans, Romans chapter 3. Romans, as a book, really works through this idea of righteousness. And so I just want to briefly hop into a passage. I'm going to read the passage and just explain a little bit of it. So Romans 3, 19 to 26. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness, because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time, so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Do you see how this passage from Romans speaks directly to the same thing that Jesus is addressing in Matthew? The law revealed to us our unrighteousness. Jesus revealed to us God's righteousness. This means there's a massive gap between us and God which also means there's a massive gap between us and being good. What this passage in Romans is telling us is that if we place our trust in Jesus, then Jesus brings us across this gap. God himself helps us change our heart desires so that we might increasingly desire that which is good. Recently, there has been... Um, something happening on a few university campuses in the United States. You may have seen news. It was all a buzz on social media. 
One writer calls it the surprising, a surprising work of God. It began at Asbury University. And here's how one professor describes what, is hap- what happened on that campus. He says this, most Wednesday mornings at Asbury University are like any other. A few minutes before 10, students begin to gather in Hughes Auditorium for chapel. Students are required to attend a certain number of chapels each semester, so they tend to show up as a matter of routine. But this past Wednesday was different. After the benediction, the gospel choir began to sing a final chorus. And then something began to happen that defies easy description. Students did not leave. They were struck by what seemed to be a quiet but powerful sense of transcendence. And they did not want to go. They stayed and continued to worship. They are still there. I teach theology across the street at Asbury Theological Seminary. And when I heard what was happening, I immediately decided to go to the chapel to see for myself. When I arrived, I saw hundreds of students singing quietly. They were praising and praying earnestly for themselves and their neighbors and our world, expressing repentance and contrition for sin and interceding for healing, wholeness, peace, and justice. You see, we have been called to be salt and to be light and to be living good lives that make a real impact. But that's not something we can do on our own. It begins with experiencing the overwhelming love of God demonstrated by Jesus' death for us. When we trust Jesus fully, He begins a work of transformation in us. It doesn't always happen like it did with the university students, all at once like that. In fact, it most often doesn't. But what we see in that event is that a relationship with a good God, it it draws people to be more aware of their sin. In other words, If you want to be good, your first step is not to just get good, but to come to know the one who is truly good and wants to give you his goodness. All it requires from us is complete surrender to Jesus. Will you pray with me? Holy God, we come before you as a people who admittedly we fall short. We fall short of your standard. We even fall short of our standard of what it means to be good. And so, God, we know that to be good, we must come to you. And so, Father, I pray for for each of us in the room that we might fall before you, that we might submit ourselves to you as 
the one who is truly righteous. And that because of your great love for us, through Jesus, that you might redeem us and put on us your righteousness. It's in Jesus' name we pray.